Good afternoon. It's Monday the 8th of May 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bring his northern exposure from north of the border and uh, Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. Well, we felt we should uh, kick off with the occasion. And uh, I'm delighted to say that the King and Queen just wanted to say thanks for the glorious occasion. So um, what's your thoughts, Mike? Uh, I'm sure we'll understand my thoughts as we go through this. Uh, what are your thoughts, David? See the way I passed the buck there? Yeah. Well, um, it it was um, it was quite an occasion. It was um, uh, it was a, um, a moving occasion. It was a very um, deeply spiritual and and, and um, very much a Christian occasion. So many of the things that were concerning many of us about what would be done to that ceremony weren't done. And what we had was something which was very much in the tradition that had gone before. Um, and it was overtly Christian and it was very much a direct relationship between a nation and a king and between a nation and a king and the Lord. Now, um, I was thinking at a couple of points through that, looking at, say, Mr. Wellesby officiating. I wonder how much he actually believes this. Right. And uh, I would like to have the opportunity of asking him that at some stage. Maybe we will. Um, and uh, there is certainly a conflict between the everyday life in this country and what that ceremony represented, which is looking back in many ways to things that are at least in part lost, but not entirely lost. And I think that's important. OK, thank you for that. Well, you uh, chose this um uh, coronation edition, Scotland on Sunday, um, a fascinating image. I don't think it's a particularly pleasant image, but I wonder why it's been chosen and I wonder why they've chosen this particular style of image. I don't know whether you've got thoughts on that, David, since it's come come down from north of the border. Not really. I mean, I was really just putting that as a placeholder to, to start off a sort of further discussion of, of, of some of the detail of this. Um, the the next bit we're going to look at is is very much in contrast to that image. Yeah. Um, no grandeur, no jewels, no ermines, no furs, no gold cloak, no nothing. Um, and I think that's maybe the point I was looking to make here: the contrast between the public face and the deeper significance of what's happening. Okay. Don't we are here to crown a king, and we crown a king to serve. What is given today is for the gain of all. For Jesus Christ announced a kingdom in which the poor and oppressed are freed from the chains of injustice, the blind see, the bruised and brokenhearted are healed. That kingdom sets the aims of all righteous government, all authority. And the kingdom also sets the means of all government and authority. For Jesus doesn't grasp power or hold on to status. 
The King of Kings, Jesus Christ, was anointed not to be served, but to serve. He creates the unchangeable law of good authority, that with the privilege of power comes the duty to serve. Service is love in action. We see active love in our care for the most vulnerable, the way we nurture and encourage the young in the conservation of the natural world. We have seen those priorities in the life of duty lived by our King. Today, we have the honour of being in this Abbey with so many who show such love. You work with charities and organisations. You build community. You serve the nation in armed forces, in emergency services, and so many other ways. Well, David, um, I, I have three uh, clips. That was the first one that I chose because um, who is really the focus? Is the focus the king or is it is the focus the master of ceremonies, Justin Welby? And uh, for me, this was just utter hypocrisy when he's describing the good works of the people assembled there, because we have so many people that I feel you can look at and and are they are they doing what Justin Welby is talking about? No, they're not. They're doing the exact opposite. Um, but aside from that, if you listen to what he said there, uh, he was talking about conservation. He was talking about all the kinds of things. That were, he was commenting on some of the things that uh, King Charles has stood for in the past, uh, which aren't about, uh, which are more about the sort of globalist agenda exactly. rather than the the, uh, the the agenda of the nation. Which so I think that was pretty clear from that even that little opening clip. I I felt it was, and that was one of the reasons why I picked that particular clip. But I wanted to emphasise to our audience the power of uh, Justin Welby, and I'm calling him Master of Ceremonies, but. I don't know what your reply to that would be, David. Well, as I said, I, I wondered at several times whether Justin Welby actually meant this. Um, I mean, as I as I listened to that, I was picking out both. He's pointing at the kingdom, right? But he's very unclear about what that is, which is uh, a, a common failure in, in Christianity. So there's, there's vagueness, there's confusion in what he's actually saying um, because he's implying that Christ won't rule. No, Christ will rule. That's the whole point, going to receive a kingdom and then come back. But So he doesn't seem to be particularly solid on on his theology there. Um, and and But nevertheless, you know, the, the primary part of that speech was centred on the relationship with Christ, I I do wonder whether he believes this because you know so much of what he does suggests otherwise. Um, but that's maybe one for another day. In terms of um, the relationship between the people in Christ as King and the people and a human King, that's always the, the human king is always going to come off very much second best in that comparison, because you're talking about um, 
a, a, a rule based entirely on, on consent when you're talking about Christ. You're talking about people um, voluntarily um, being, being ruled by him. And that's not the nature of the state, for sure, and never has been. Let's be let's be quite clear that no point has has any state really approached that uh, very 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 closely. Um, so you know there's a, there are so many uh, contradictions and and um, so many areas where um, th there are uh, contrasts being worked out and have not yet been worked out. That you, that you are hit by the points that jar as the uh, as as the ceremony goes on. Okay, thank you for that. Well, the next little clip contains several segments, and uh, this particular clip contains the anointing, which I know is something that you were particularly interested in. I was very interested to see what occurred, but let's just let this run. It's a number of little clips that I thought would bring out some interesting points. Um, so we'll watch it and then we can, we can talk about it. And the power of thy mercy, and that we may be made a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for thine own possession. Blessed be God, our strength and our salvation, now and forever. Amen. life and limb, so help me God. The covenant sworn this day. May thy servant Camilla, who wears this crown, be filled by thine abundant grace and with all princely virtues. Well, there we are. There were a number of interesting points there. Just my, my observations. I was fascinated with uh, Welby talking about the royal priesthood. And I have to say, I didn't get a good feeling out of that particular expression. I'd like to know more about what he was talking about. We then had the anointing of uh, Charles, and of course this was done behind the screens that were brought on by the exceptionally smart soldiers. Um, so that took place out of sight of the public. And uh, then ultimately we, we see uh, William paying homage to his uh, father, and we also see Camilla crowned. And my question is, should she have been crowned? But I'm Going to push that back to you, David, particularly on the anointing side. Well, first off, um, a royal priest, a holy a priesthood, a holy nation, right? So that's that is the uh, that is the um, calling for Israel in 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 biblical times, and um, for the church for Christians. Currently, uh, 
So the question that I have for that is, does, does our nation measure up? It's not that I've got a problem with the phrase. Right? I've got a problem with where we're currently at because we're quite clearly not running this country as an example of a holy nation and a royal priesthood. Um, I thought the anointing was was um, very striking. The, the, the thing that was most visually striking was the fact that all the gold braid come off and it's a simple white tunic and he goes in and he's it's, it's a moment between the king and God. So there's a, there's a screen round or it was a canopy in the case of, of Elizabeth. But there's always some sort of covering to keep the privacy of the moment. So amongst other things, what the Archbishop of Canterbury says, which you can't hear, all the singing and all the rest of it, of Zadok the Priest, the, the, the music's called Zadok the Priest. What the Archbishop of Canterbury says is, and as Solomon was anointed king by Zadok the Priest and Nathan the Prophet, so may you be anointed, blessed and consecrated king over the peoples whom the Lord God has given you to rule and govern. Question about whether he's actually going to do that. We can maybe come back to that uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it it, it clearly looks back to the, uh, the throne being established in Solomon. It clearly looks back to biblical times, and this is a continuation. There's various views as to how much of a continuation, but a continuation of that line. Um, that's what's happening there. That's what that's about. Um, I suspect many people will have not been fully aware of that. Um, and this is ultimately the point of, are we a nation, one nation under God? As um, Mark may comment on from an American point of view, um, that, that was very much a, a founding idea in America as well, or are we not? So here we have a ceremony that's very much pointing to that that position in a country that's very much heading in the opposite direction into chaos and confusion. Um, so the the conflicts you see between some of the people involved, between some of their statements and then what they're actually doing in the ceremony, these are all real conflicts, Brian. Uh, but I think they're indicative of a, of a much greater conflict over who we are as a people. Um, many things to discuss, and we're not going to be able to do it all in the news. Um, it's just, uh, if, you, if you say the nation is going in the wrong direction, of course, the nation is being driven in the wrong direction, largely due to the offices of the people present there at the coronation, where, where we, could, we could be pointing at uh, King Charles, we could be pointing at the Prime Minister who was present, we could be pointing at um, members of the Bank of England who were present. Uh, so the people drive, it seems to me, maybe this is a simplistic view, but it seems to me that the people driving the country in the wrong direction are the very same people who are conducting the uh, ceremony, which is supposed to be taking us in the right direction. Uh, not even conducting the ceremony, but also providing the, the screens, it seems. Indeed. Well. So let's bring it on screen, because yeah. the question is, where did the anointing screen come from? And uh, if we... Uh, say, and there's evidence to suggest it, that uh, interests from the City of London are driving uh, the direction of the country and have been for quite a long time. 
it's perhaps not surprising then that that's who provided the screen. So the screen was gifted for the occasion by the City of London Corporation and City Livery Companies. Uh, and the coronation service uh, at the coronation service, the anointing screen will be held by service personnel from the regiments of the Household Division who hold the freedom of the City of London. So the City of London influence uh, coming into this as well. Uh, and I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on the symbolism in the actual uh, in the actual screen itself, but uh, many people talking about the tree of life, Kabbalistic uh, type of uh, symbolism in that. Well, uh, it's, so it, it's also interesting that we, we've got the City of London coming in not for part of the service. They're coming in to put essentially a marker on what what you've quite rightly identified, David, as the, as the key part of the ceremony. It's so holy that the public is not allowed to see what's going on behind the screen. Um, that's that's the start position, but surprisingly, that's the that's the ceremony that the City of London wants to put its marker on. I'd like an explanation. I'm not asking you for that explanation, but we'll throw it out to our audience because I think there's some interesting questions. Yes. Okay. Well, we've got another clip here, and this to me brings home Charles saying what he should be doing. Let's have a look. God of compassion and mercy, whose Son was sent not to be served but to serve, give grace that I may find in thy service perfect freedom, and in that freedom knowledge of thy truth. Grant that I may be a blessing to all thy children of every faith and belief, that together we may discover the ways of gentleness and be led into the paths of peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So my, my feeling on this was I, I found it interesting, the phrase perfect freedom. He wants perfect freedom. I'd like to understand more about this. Um, but we've, uh, we've got uh, knowledge about truth. Uh, we've got the children mentioned, who I think the royal family as a whole have failed to protect over a great many years. And we've got the statement about peace. But this is the very same man who was active very recently um, to help get those troops off to the war in Ukraine. And of course, many of those young men and some women will now be dead. So what comes to me once again is hypocrisy. But this is my personal opinion. Um, can Charles stand up to the uh, promises he's made to God? Um, but Penny Morden was, was in there? Well, she was there. You saw a little clip of uh, Penny Morden in her blue standing there. And David, you've picked up on this really excellent picture of her. 
Um, what are we to make of the symbology of, of this uh, particular lady and her equipment? Well, first, firstly, you'd have to say that she conducted herself with a lot of uh, grace and poise during the day, and she actually did what was presumably physically quite a taxing and difficult thing. You know, I'd like to see you carry that sword around in heels, Brian. Well, maybe I wouldn't, but uh, you get you get my message. Um, and she actually, you know, she she did very well on the day, and in fact, um, that has had a political. Um, effect on her personally, the, the way she conducted herself there. Now, we know that Penny Mordaunt, when it comes to her political standpoint, is, um, shall we say, not a traditionalist, you know? So again, there's a conflict, there's a contrast between the people conducting the roles, however well, in the case of Penny, that she actually did it on the day, and what they say and believe. Well, maybe we should be pointing this out to them now, and, and and in weeks and months going forward, that on those occasions where they fall short of um, the uh, ideas expressed in that ceremony, they should be reminded of them. Because uh, this is... Um, simply being there is not... It, it doesn't... It's not a value-free thing. It's got... A lot of deep significance. So she she carried um, the sword of destiny at the coronation. That has a deep significance. She she has to, I would suggest, live up to that deep significance in what she does um, in in her politics. Now, uh, do you think she will? Probably not. I think I would agree with that. Well, we, we should we should hold we should hold her to that standard in that case. Indeed, we sh we should. One uh, little clip here. This this is uh, this is really for you, Mike, because it's uh, showing the signature. And of course, there was some discussion prior to the coronation about whether the signature would be top or bottom. Let's look at it. So he has signed under the words, which... And luckily the pen worked. I was very worried that he was going to get a scratchy pen because it, it, we can it, see it that he did blocked badly on the first one, though. <laughs> we, we've seen him almost lose his temper at a, a poor pen. So it worked and it was at the bottom. So, so. I don't know that we've actually seen the, the, the words that he signed under yet, but uh, that I'm sure that'll become clear in due course. But in the meantime, uh, David, uh, what's Hamza Yusuf been up to? Well, he was at the coronation, and uh, he was wearing a very, um, shall we say, unusual uh, interpretation of uh, of, of uh, uh, a, a suit with a kilt. And uh, this is apparently Asian fusion, um, uh, Asian-Glaswegian fusion, I think, um, is the explanation for the jacket. Um, but I particularly like Scottish Twitter, Scottish political Twitter, which is always good for a laugh, um, came up with this um, uh, wonderful little tweet here. Um, uh, Prince Louis and his big sister um, pointing at someone across the Abbey and they're saying, 
there, that's the idiot that fell off the scooter. Um, so I thought that was quite funny. Okay, well, the, the last bit really in this segment, David, is uh, you picked up some comment about whiteness on the balcony. Well, we, Hamza doesn't like white people. We know that. We've seen the speech. Um, and we've got a, a little clip here. Someone's recorded this on their phone. They've recorded it from the television on their phone. So you can hear the ordinary person gasp at the statement, right, um, about, about the colour of the people on the balcony. Um, but nobody in the studio challenged it. Now, this should have been eviscerated. This nasty racism... Imagine you saying this in reverse about the Nigerian royal family, right? This nasty racism shouldn't be allowed on national television, but here it was, and nobody said boo to it. But you can hear the reaction to the ordinary member of the public who was videoing this to what was said. From the, uh, the, uh, the rich diversity of the Abbey to a terribly white balcony, I'm very <laughs> struck by yes. that. I'm also looking at those younger generations and thinking, uh, what are the nuances that they will inhabit as they grow? Right, and the phrase, what are the nuances that they will inhabit as they grow, means nothing. It's word salad. It's meant to make you think she's clever when she doesn't actually have anything to say. And inside her head, she's just saying, did I get away with that bit of overt racism? Maybe I did. And she lost concentration, so out came the word salad. Uh, there was I'm just, sorry, David, I'm, I'm just going to... I just want to challenge you on, on something you said just before that. The comment shouldn't be allowed on national television. It should be allowed on national television. It shouldn't go unchallenged, I'll grant you, but, but I'm, I'm, we should not be taking the position that something shouldn't be allowed on national television. You're quite right. I misspoke. It should be eviscerated on national television. You can say it, but you should walk away feeling sorry that you ever raised such a crazy idea. Right? I, I'm not in favour of any censorship of any idea, however repugnant. Yes. Okay. Glad, glad to clarify that. Now, uh, there was some protest. Uh, so let's just have a look at some of the protests. So this, uh, first of all, is Trafalgar Square. Um, and, uh, well, there's protesters uh, in Trafalgar Square demonstrating against the coronation of King Charles III, the organisers of Group Republic, uh, in anti an anti-monarchy group which organised the protests have been arrested, according to the tweet, uh, in uh, Scotland. Uh, I think this is Glasgow. Uh, so thousands of anti-monarchy anti protesters in the streets of Scotland's Glasgow to protest against the monarchy of King Charles III's coronation. Uh, and also in uh, Cardiff. Uh, so, again, quite a number uh, there as well. Uh, now, that protest, um, peaceful protest, uh, should have been allowed. Uh, but in London, it well, to some degree, it wasn't. So let's uh, just have a look at some of the arrests that were taking place. Uh, perhaps this person, uh, uh, was the police said, he was carrying eggs. So he's been taken away. Uh, but then uh, other people in yellow coats taken, taken away as well. If, if they're happy for us to pay for it, then the very least you'd expect is the right to protest peacefully against it, said Stuzzi. Uh, these are going to be the residing images shown across the world, or perhaps not, uh, because of course, uh, mainstream press wasn't really covering this in great detail, uh, if you look at it in comparison with the level of coverage for the event itself. Uh, then we have uh, this one showing the, uh, the van load of, uh, banner, of uh, placards rather being uh, seized by the police and so on. But it wasn't just protesters that were arrested uh, because Westminster Council 
uh, was quite un quite unhappy that some of their uh, women's uh, support group, uh, known as uh, Night Stars, volunteers were arrested overnight as well. Um, so uh, uh, 64 people arrested apparently in total, including the leader of uh, Republic, uh, Graham Smith. Uh, he had been collecting drinks and placards uh, for the, the demonstrators. As we said, New Scotland, or the Metropolitan Police rather, uh, made this statement. We've made a number of arrests in the area of Carton House Terrace. The individuals have been held on suspicion of breaching the peace. Earlier today, we arrested four people in the area of St. Martin's Lane. Uh, they were held on suspicion of conspiracy to cause a public nuisance. Uh, we seized lock-on devices, was the claim. So they were saying that uh, people were intending to lock on at some point. Uh, a further three people were arrested in the area of Wellington Arch. They arrested on suspicion of possessing articles to cause criminal damage. There will be further updates. Now, uh, these arrests were apparently made under this piece of legislation, uh, the Public Order Act 2023. Uh, this is a new piece of legislation. We've been talking about it uh, over the last several months. Uh, what fascinated me uh, was that uh, this piece of legislation was used to prevent protest against the monarch, uh, was uh, signed into royal assent on the 2nd of May, 2023. So uh, it was uh, brought through just a few days before the coronation and some people suggesting uh, that the timing of that is quite interesting. But I just wanted to highlight this in the context of the other uh, sort of anti-protest uh, and anti-counter-narrative uh, legislations going on. Because no matter what you think about uh, the coronation itself and the protest, uh, people uh, being prevented from protesting is uh, perhaps not a direction we want to go in. Um, so uh, we just remind everybody of this little graphic uh, showing the sort of legislation that we have. Uh, the uh, outcome to shut down free speech, we've got the online safety bill and also the national security bill. The national security bill is at its final stages uh, at the moment. Uh, and uh, of course that will potentially have uh, a problem for people that are perceived by the state as amplifying Russian narratives, let's put it that way. Uh, criminalized protest uh, is another potential outcome through the uh, Police Crime uh, Courts and Sentencing Act and the Public Order Act. We've seen that over the weekend. Uh, free and fair elections, uh, the Elections Act, uh, unaccountable to law, the government becoming un unaccountable to law. That's uh, through the Judicial Review and Courts Act and also the Covert Human Intelligence Criminal Conduct Act. Uh, the removal of rights. Well, the Bill of Rights, the new British Bill of Rights seems to have stalled at the moment. It's still only at the second reading stage. Uh, we'll see what the government decides to do about that. And then, of course, they took the power to strip people's citizenship under certain circumstances through the National, Nationality and Borders Act. And when you, there's other similar legislation. When you take that as a whole, um, it's, it's a pretty draconian regime we're beginning to, to live under. So, uh, David, very, very briefly, just a couple of thoughts on the, the right to protest and the fact that that right is uh, increasingly being infringed by uh, legislation pushed through in a very timely manner in this case, certainly. Legislation pushed through or more often under COVID simply uh, statutory orders pushed through and uh, not debated or discussed. And we've seen uh, all the protesters in favour of ancient liberties, the sort of things that the, that the, the king of the monarchy should be defending, um, arrested and intimidated by police up and down the country. The reduction in, um, in, in liberty and the ability and freedom to protest is extremely worrying and is continuing at a, an alarming pace. Um, the 
the situation is obviously not helped by the likes of the Just Stop Oil protesters who like to throw beans at works of art and disrupt um, traffic and disrupt snooker matches and all sorts of other stunts where they're not protesting, they're hijacking events to get their message across, to capture the media. Um, they're, not, they're not conducting a, a dignified and peaceful protest. And this obviously brings protest itself into some sort of uh, disrepute. Um, the fact that the uh, legislation that's coming forward doesn't very clearly differentiate between one and the other, though, is uh, also a worry. Uh, well, in fact, I would go further than that, David. The Just Stop Oil protests uh, that are garnering all the, all the headlines are being uh, actively facilitated by the police. They're not being arrested uh, when they close the M25 and stop ambulances getting through and this kind of thing. That's generating the headlines, which is justifying uh, the, the draconian position that the British government is taking. Uh, at the moment, just to clarify, uh, somebody in the uh, chat box has said that the, actually the media today is reporting that the new British Bill of Rights has now been dropped by the government. So I, I haven't seen that. I'd be very interested. That was just being reported in the press today. So uh, I'd be interested to see if that's the case. It certainly had stalled. OK, uh, David, let's move on to Scotland then. And uh, we've got the Herald here, Police Scotland, calling National Crime Agency an SNP finance probe. Yes, so the Herald's reporting uh, reports that the specialist National Crime Agency, which leads the fight against serious and organised crime, has been asked to carry out a peer review, uh, helping to identify any possible lines of inquiry in the in the uh, the uh, Police Scotland inquiry into the SNP and the SNP finances. And it says the National Crime Agency, often referred to as the UK's FBI. Does that make it a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, we'll, ask, we'll ask Mark. Uh, it's the main agency dealing with money laundering, complex fraud, and other forms of financial crime. Um, now, uh, against the background of this, um, there has been concern over the lack of progress by Police Scotland because these allegations were made a long, long time ago. Uh, so in, uh, in April, the Herald was, was reporting that the whistleblower... Um, who initially raised the allegations against the SNP and their, their, their financial handling of the money they'd raised, uh, is calling for an inquiry into the police response. Um, so he said he first lodged a complaint with the police over two years ago, late March 21, how, how the, uh, over how the funds raised for a second independence referendum had not been ring-fenced, but had been spent on other things without permission. He says he, he was met with initial resistance before he had to lodge another uh, uh, with the police in January this year over what he believed to be a lack of progress. Um, Harold continues, uh, the wheels of justice dragged on slowly. He was accused of being a crank, a traitor to Scotland, of trying to bring down the SNP uh, and being an MI5 agent. Um, that the SNP had raised £666,000, just a number, Brian, uh, through appeals between 2017 and 2020, uh, with a pledge to spend these funds on future independence campaign, but allegations surfaced that the money was diverted from the Ring Fence Fund, sparking in the exit of senior people from the SNP. And this has been a major crisis in the SNP. Now, um, it could be, however, much worse than is being reported in the Herald and elsewhere. Craig Murray who um, has done some excellent work reporting on the crisis and, and, and problems and conspiracies within the SNP and has gone to jail for his, uh, for his pains, uh, courtesy of Police Scotland and the Crown Office. 
Uh, Craig Muddy is reporting that the National Crime Agency were not called in by Police Scotland, but actually were involved in a suspicious activity report generated by a bank, and these reports automatically go to the NCA. So he's he's alleging that Police Scotland were forced to move after 18 months of sitting on their backsides um, due to corruption at senior levels in the and in the in in uh, Police Scotland and in the Crown Office, having been stymied by stop by top brass, um, and, it'd be, and this had been uh, enormously frustrating for the actual detectives working on the case. They were based at Kurt Kosh. Uh, he then continues, Garkosh were delighted to be let off the leash, but they were then frustrated again by top brass tipping off the suspects on the 9th of February. Sturgeon resigned six days later, clearing her diary instantly. Um, Police Scotland then paused the investigation to allow Humza to be very quickly put into place in a radically shortened um, process against the, the SNP constitution. Uh, he says, I've spoken to one witness who was keen to give evidence and was told by the police um, that they could not be seen before the 27th of March. As a coincidence, this was the closing date for the, um, uh, the leadership election. Um, he then says the over-the-top searches after Humza's election were therefore a performative, just theatre. I'd known they were coming six weeks uh, before, so I'm sure the suspects did as well. So he's suggesting that, in fact, it was only the involvement of the National Crime Agency that spurred Police Scotland to finally act. And even then, they did so with a level of corruption. So we don't know if this is true, but it's a very serious allegation. Um, and we must remember against the background of this, uh, a lot of things happened in February, including the resignation of Chief Constable Ian Livingston, the head of Police Scotland. Um, so he, he announced his, his uh, resignation on the 23rd of February. Uh, and from what I understand, it was basically uh, uh, immediate. He said he was leaving in the summer, but that was... Um, that was a nominal end to his salaried position. His his work ended, as I, I understand it, more or less on that day, and uh, he walked away from Police Scotland, leaving them leaderless at a very interesting and unusual time. Um, we have here a quote from Russell Finlay, former um, investigative journalist, a very good investigative journalist, now an MSP. Um, he says, uh, he, and he talks about the, the counterspin that's now coming out, basically attacking the police investigation. He says he's uh, escalating apparently SNP-sanctioned dog whistles in relation to the police investigation are unsettling, inappropriate and disrespectful. Any perception that a ruling government party would seek to unduly influence the work of the police service is borderline banana republic territory. Now, this reminded me of a story that we covered some time ago, um, which was the resignation from the Scottish Police Authority, which is a governing body that oversees the one police force to rule them all that we have in Scotland. Um, so their chair uh, resigned and saying uh, saying that the system was fundamentally flawed. Her, her name was Professor Susan Deacon. She resigned immediately as head of the Scottish Police Authority. This was back in December 2019 saying she'd become increasingly convinced that the arrangements for overseeing and running of Police Scotland are not fit for purpose. She said there's little more I can do to make these arrangements work. Effectively, we have here her resignation letter, and the main extract here I want to uh, highlight um, is she talked about the arrangements for policing in Scotland are fundamentally flawed in structure, culture, and practice. 
All right, I can code, there's little more I can do to make these arrangements work effectively. I would suggest that the Scottish Government thinks afresh about how the police service is scrutinised and held to account and how, uh, or if a better separation between politics in, and policing and indeed between the police service and those who oversee it can be achieved. So she was saying the police were subject to political control and she had to go because she couldn't do anything about it. Um, this um, against the background of what is being alleged by Craig Murray um, simply lends weight to his accusations and um, we should watch this very carefully because it, it all goes to whether we're actually governed uh, in a country where the rule of law applies or whether the police force are politically controlled, in which case if you're a dissident, you're in trouble. Yes. Indeed. I'll just add to that, David, that I always wince slightly. You mentioned the Banana Republic expression, which to me is is a very, um, what is it? it? It doesn't have much meat to it. What we're talking about is corruption. We're talking about misfeasance, malfeasance in public office. And I, I think that when we dig into the subjects of what's going on. We've got to use the right words to describe what's going on. Otherwise, they slither away under these very um, loose labels, which sound important. They're fundamentally flawed. But in fact, that has no substance to it whatsoever. Um, right, David, uh, very briefly, I just want to get your thoughts on this. Now, of course, uh, in past past week or two, we've been talking about First Republic Bank in the United States. Uh, there are a couple of others uh, on the cards for following it very quickly into uh, whatever state it's in. Uh, the first one here, Pacific Western Bank, is, is second on the list. Uh, the next one uh, that's likely to come is Western Alliance uh, and seems to be top of the list as well. Uh, we've got Lawrence MacDonald here, uh, formerly uh, Lehman Brothers, saying that he estimates around uh, 50 US banks at the point of collapse at this point in time. Uh, but in fact, others are saying uh, well, actually, it could be significantly more, a uh, couple of hundred perhaps. And now, uh, last time you were talking about this, you were talking about consolidation of banks. I just want to get your thoughts on this, but just as a final point on, on it, uh, Gallup uh, held a poll in the United States uh, and they had decided that 48% uh, of uh, the public in the United States are worried about whether their money is safe or not in banks. Um, um, what I'm going to say is, I'm surprised that number is so low, uh, but maybe that gives us a clue as to why nothing's being done about it in the meantime. Well, I mean, 48% though, Americans are worried about whether their banks are still going to be there in the, uh, after next weekend. That's got all of the potential for the biggest bank run you have ever seen. And uh, what we're seeing at the moment is, uh, is the biggest bank run. It's just in slow motion. It's just playing itself out more gradually. But you have to remember the banks have already gone bust. Signature banks, um, Silicon Valley Bank, etc. If you if you sum up the total of their their net worth in nominal terms, not maybe inflation corrected, it's already worse than 2008. All of the banks that went bust in 2008 are smaller in aggregate than the, than the capital value, the, the market value of the banks that have now gone under. And that's not counting Credit Suisse, right? So you have already the biggest banking catastrophe since the Great Depression, and it's just getting started. Yes. Um, 
the yes, the ultimate end point will be to amalgamate uh, the assets um, into into many fewer hands. This will be to the detriment of the American economy, I'm sure. Uh, but also, what other um, ramifications are there going to be? Because the the banking system as a whole is basically bust. Yeah. Um, the Federal Reserve is basically bust, and the government is basically bust. And yet, the, these three entities have to bail one another out. Um, and th this is this is kind of impossible. And eventually, impossible things don't happen. Uh, well, indeed. Okay, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop, but please do share material you find on the various platforms, uh, particularly ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, now, David, uh, last week uh, we showed uh, on Thursday's uh, 1 p.m. slot uh, your interview with David Roll. Uh, that's now available on the front page of the website on demand. Yes, uh, we've had a lot of very positive feedback about this interview. Um, it's looking at ancient history, but also it has huge implications for understanding how the world uh, has got to where we are now. And, and really fascinating insight into what happens if you challenge the orthodoxy and you have, you know, evidence, facts, reason, things on your side. What happens? Is it, uh, do you get into an evidence, facts, uh, a factual and evidence-based and reasonable debate? No, uh, you get either ignored, shunned, or personally uh, vilified. So this is all very good stuff. And uh, David Roll uh, provided a lot of fascinating insights. And uh, please uh, enjoy that one. Okay, thanks. Okay, excellent. Well, we'll bring the next one on screen. So it's very, uh, very simple. We'd like to say thank you to, uh, to all the dogs out there that are supporting UK Column. We were sent another really excellent photo of that brilliant jacket. Yeah. And uh, I love it. And uh, thank you very much for sending that in. Um, now, we've also we are getting a lot of um, traffic about Andrew Bridgen, support for him. This particular one uh, is thanking us for the interview that we were able to do with him, but also really supporting against the attack um, that he'd been anti-Semitic and saying, um, I'm somewhat paraphrasing the, the uh, paragraph here, but it was giving support for Andrew Bridgen and um, also pointing out that he's getting a lot of support from Jewish uh, community groups who also have huge concerns about matters to do with vaccines. And so the, the, the main point of this is it, uh, Andrew Bridgen is doing a good job and people are not fooled by this anti-Semitic attack on him. Uh, we'd also like to say that uh, Robert Says, who we interviewed in relation to local people standing up against the 50-minute cities, uh, he sent us in a little email with um, uh, a report on what happened in the local elections. I'll try and summarise this very quickly. You can always freeze it on screen, see the detail. But essentially, although one candidate, only one candidate was elected, a lot of incredible hard work, they did get one candidate elected. And then he starts to point out that um, uh, uh, the statistics of what happened, the turnout was between 25 and 28% of a 30,000 town population. So my reckoning as an ish, an approximation, 
25% equals 7,500 voters, and we got 2,227 of those. Not enough, but one hell of a result considering we did it in a four-week period and we caused waves. The Labour guys were caught red-handed removing our leaflets and boards. That happens across the country. It certainly happens in, in, in Plymouth on both sides of the political divide. It got really nasty and I was shocked at how devious and underhand local politics can be. So this is good because it's local people getting stuck in to make a difference. And of course, once they do this, they really start to understand how yeah. local politics works. So we're going to say, well done for the effort. Well done for getting your first candidate. I'm sure there'll be more will be elected in due course. Okay, let's move on to health. And before we get into uh, World Health Organization with Mark, uh, let's just mention this because the UK government has decided that they're going to pile uh, £240 million into GP's practices this year. It's, this is all fantastic news. Is this about uh, providing people with uh, better health care? No, it's about putting uh, digital telephone systems and uh, new work websites into the, uh, into the GP so that people can uh, get phone up the GP surgery and sit in a queue and be told which part of you know which st step they are on the queue and so on uh, so it's fantastic so practices across England will be given 240 million pounds this year to do that uh, it's going to replace old analog phone systems with modern digital phone systems it's going to create easy to use online tools so that we uh, when we phone up the GPS will know on the day that we phone uh, whether uh, our query or how our query will be managed. So if it's not urgent, appointments will be offered within two weeks or patients will be referred to the NHS 111 line uh, or to local pharmacies. Um, but with this digital advanced digital telephony, rather than an engaged tone, uh, we'll be sitting in a queue just like we are with Virgin Media or BT when we're phoning about our broadband uh, connection and so on. Uh, but don't worry, here's uh, Steve Barkley. This is what he had to say. And we're already making real progress with 10% more GP appointments happening every month compared to before the pandemic. I think he needs to back that up with some uh, data because I don't believe that statement. No, he, he needs to get out there and talk to real people on the streets because they would tell him the situation very quickly. But this is half the problem. We have more than half the problem. We have MPs who simply do not understand what's actually happening in their own country anymore because they're spending too much time behind the protective wall of parliament and they're not out and about. Uh, but Mark, welcome to the programme. Let's uh, talk about uh, the World Health Organization pandemic treaty. But first of all, uh, COVID-19 pandemic is officially over. Yeah, interestingly enough, um, talked to James Roguski, the WHO researcher in LA last night, and um, I tweaked some things from that. Yes, the COVID-19 public health emergency of international concern, that's what that P-H-E-I-C acronym is for, is officially over. And Roguski puts here in, on this slide, uh, the, the fake has ended, but the lies continue. Now, I don't have a slide for what I'm about to read, but a little bit from the World Health Organization itself and a statement on the 5th of May. The WHO Director General has the pleasure of transmitting the report of the 15th meeting of the International Health Regulations Emergency Committee regarding the coronavirus 2019 COVID-19 uh, pandemic held on Thursday, May 4, 2023, uh, yada, yada, yada. But the, mo the most important part is the WHO Director General, that's Tedros, 
concurs with the advice offered by that committee <clears throat> regarding the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, note those words, ongoing, nevertheless, Tedros determines that COVID-19 is now an established and ongoing health issue, which no longer constitutes a public health emergency of international concern. So they're basically saying this is becoming more routine. We handle it like we would any other kind of ongoing illness, but it's not this huge threat. Now, um, there's a link in that that mentions the um, from emergency response to long-term COVID-19 disease management. It's a PDF document. Uh, sustaining gains made during the COVID-19 pandemic. <clears throat> and when you read it, it talks about, um, you know, that uh, cases seem to be going down and deaths seem to be going down, but they're also saying surveillance is down, meaning that they're not getting as uh, frequent of reports as they used to get. So therefore, the cases going down and the COVID deaths uh, allegedly going down may be an unreliable data because they're not getting the, the surveillance and reports like they used to get. So they're leaving kind of a door open here to where they can kind of back out of this and say, wait a minute, now we're getting more surveillance, more reports, and lo and behold, cases seem to be going up again, and so-called COVID deaths seem to be open, uh, uh, going up again, excuse me. So it sounds positive, in some ways it is, but when you read the fine print in the WHO literature, they, they leave themselves kind of an escape hatch in this thing, so that's something to be very mindful of. From there, we can move on. Uh, this is a fairly concise thing. Um, your written public comments are requested by Wednesday, May 10th. That's a couple of days from now. And this is the uh, Office of Global Affairs of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. But according to Rogowski, even people from other countries can write to the HHS. Um, they are part of the representation in the World Health Assembly of the United States of America. And to do that, as it notes on this next slide, uh, to write to this um, uh, committee of the Health and Human Services uh, Department of the U.S. government, please send your written comments regarding the proposed pandemic treaty and the proposed amendments to the international health regulations and send those comments to uh, OGA, make, make sure I get this right, OGA.RSVP at HHS.gov by Wednesday, May 10th, with the subject line, written comment regarding stakeholder listening session for World Health Assembly uh, 76. People from anywhere on earth may send in comments. They did not specify that only U.S. citizens could participate. But Roguski noted correctly that uh, through the U.S. State Department and through Health and Human Services, that particular Office of Global Affairs, that's where a lot of the uh, representation of the United States at the World Health Assembly comes from, those personnel. Now, there's um, a justice, excuse me, a interest of justice petition, and that's just the uh, uh, symbol of it, the, the uh, artwork or graphic that goes with it. We can go from there. And uh, moving on here, uh, there's comment to Health and Human Services Office of Global Affairs and to advise the U.S. government to exit the WHO for stakeholder listening session in preparation of the 76th World Health Assembly. Uh, it says here, advise the U.S. government to exit the, the WHO, et cetera, et cetera. Moving on. Um, 
this is the suggested petition language that's posted online through uh, James Rogowski's um, Substack uh, website. And these are just some of the things. This is the generic language in the petition, and uh, individual people can just sign their name to this. Um, or they can send those individual emails to that address that I mentioned. But this is some of the things in the standard petition. These issues affect the invalidity of the relationship with the WHO at this point where independent oversight and accountability is wholly illusory and a false promise which injures U.S. citizens and the entire international community due to the lack of accountability because there is no functional audit and oversight of the WHO. I believe, that is, whoever signs their name to this petition, I believe it is in the best interest for the United States and all member states to immediately withdraw from the WHO and not adopt any further negotiations toward the IHR amendments or the pandemic treaty or Agenda 2030, uh, Agenda 2023 SDG. I'm not sure what 2023 is in that context, but SDG is Sustainable Development Goals, et cetera, et cetera. Moving on from there, a little bit more suggested language in this uh, stock petition. I, the signer, implore, implore the Health and Human Services to not adopt any pandemic treaty or IHR amendments because it is my understanding that serious criminal charges are pending by interest of justice against the WHO and WHO uh, Director General Tedros for, I'll just say, alleged serious undue medical and psychological experimentation, as well as many breaches of duty that he will not respond to. That's Tedros in multiple complaints since November of last year, despite who staff rules saying he must respond in eight days. So these are some of the allegations in this generic petition language uh, that can be sent to the HHS. And moving from there, um, this is something else from James Roguski from his Substack page. He's referring to, I think his name is Neil Oliver, a commentator there in the UK, and he's quoting him. This is what Oliver said. I want someone somewhere to respect us enough to tell us the truth about Britain today. Then we'll know where we stand. Do the powers that be truly regard us as a free people living in a sovereign nation, or do they not? Today of all days, it's not too much to ask. I might add a footnote on a personal level. Um, that's a good question to ask in light of the coronation, correct? And I think David was getting at that. And uh, there's 11 current committee members that also are have responded. Um, they're in a position to respond to an online petition in the UK. You can see some of the names there, Nick Fletcher, and uh, I think it's Elliot Coburn, and uh, nine others there. And people can take screenshots of that, and uh, we can get that information to viewers that want all 11 current committee members' identities. But anyway, moving from there, this is the petition that they are in a position to respond to, the online petition for the UK government and parliament. Hold a parliamentary vote on whether to reject amendments to the international health regulations um, of 2005. They were originally created in the late 90s then a major up update in 2005, now they're updating them again. Uh, and this is the message to those 11 members of parliament. We are concerned that parliament has not discussed and will not have a say on the 307 proposed amendments to the IHR regulations and the amendments to five articles 
to, of the IHR that were adopted by the 75th World Health Assembly last May, a year ago. Uh, 18,184 signatures. They need 100,000 signatures for this to be required to be discussed in, in the British Parliament. But this is some of the response to that petition by those 11 um, MPs. The UK and 195 other countries adopted the current version of the IHR in 2005, and they came into force on the 15th of June, 2007. The international health regulations are a key part of the global health system, key part of the global health system, providing a technical framework to prevent, protect against, control, and respond to cross-border health threats. The UK wants to ensure that countries' obligations under the IHR remain fit for purpose and take into consideration relevant lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic the best way to protect the UK from the next pandemic is by ensuring that all countries can contain and respond to outbreaks through compliance with a strengthened international health regulations. And this language is being interpreted by Rogowski uh, as, as the 11 MPs basically saying, we disagree with the petition language of uh, there's 18,000 plus signatures. We don't have to talk about it on the on the uh, floor of the House of Commons unless they get 100,000. So they probably think they're safe to kind of uh, disagree with the with the basic thrust of the petition. Anyway, there's a little bit more from that response to the petition. The UK government has a strong commitment and duty to implement international law. A strong commitment and duty to internet to implement international law. Get that that it is subject to. However, we have been clear, these MPs claim, that the UK will not sign up to any IHR amendments that would compromise the UK's ability to take domestic decisions on national public health measures. In all circumstances, they further claim the sovereignty of the UK Parliament would remain unchanged and the UK would remain in control of any future domestic decisions about national public health measures, including any restrictions. And uh, Rogowski and myself uh, feel this language is a bit flexi flexible and malleable and um, may not be altogether honest. And this is some of what Rogowski wrote on his Substack column. We're kind of winding this up now. Last year, the 27th of May, 2022, during the 75th, 75th World Health Assembly, the 194 unelected, unaccountable, and largely unknown delegates to the WHO agreed by consensus to adopt amendments to the IHR, International Health Regulations. Most people have been so distracted by the current negotiations regarding the pandemic treaty and those 307 proposed amendments to the IHR, not to mention by the King's coronation, that they have neglected to pay attention to the simple fact that the, uh, the, that the WHO did adopt amendments to the IHR last year. Most people are also unaware that Article 61 of the IHR gives each and every country, ostensibly, uh, the authority to exert their national sovereignty. And there's Article 1 there, I won't read it, but, or, or excuse me, Article 61, but Article 61 ostensibly uh, gives nations a way to opt out and maintain their sovereignty. But we've talked about the uh, malleability and contradictions in UN and, and WHO related language before. We've talked about that on this show. And this is the, this is kind of the punchline here. 
the current time period during which Great, Brit Great Britain and every other nation may reject the amendments that were adopted a year ago, that time frame is 18 months for rejection. So the deadline by which such rejections must be submitted would be before the end of this coming November 2023. More than 11 of those 18 months for rejection of the amendments have already passed. No signatures are needed and no positive vote by parliament is needed for those amendments to enter into force. Get that part. What is needed is silence and that silence, which we're seeing so far, is taken as consent. And lastly, on the 3rd of April, 2023, very, very recently, Tess Lawry of the World Council for Health submitted a petition calling for public debate. Regarding the, regarding the amendments that were adopted by the WHO last year, within 10 days, the petition gathered well over 10,000 10, signatures needed to require an official written public response from the petition committee. Citizens and residents of Great Britain may still sign the petition, uh, the one going to Parliament, uh, by going to this website, uk.stoptheamendments.com. So... Um, silence is seen as consent. So then the question becomes, will there be this silence that will be, will be interpreted as consent? And even though the, uh, those members of the parliament are saying there's nothing to worry about, we can keep our sovereignty. Will this thing still take effect uh, through inaction, through silence? And basically while everybody's asleep or focused on other issues, the IHR and medical health tyranny and the related pandemic treaty will eventually come into force. The mass media cartel, of course, is not going to give it any ink or airtime of any significance. And so this is something that I'm bringing out today because we don't want it to uh, become a sideshow or become a peripheral thing where everybody forgets about it. And then this thing just, uh, this monster is is born uh, with very little fanfare. So that's kind of the, uh, the uh, purpose of what I'm presenting. And uh, I don't know if you guys got any quick comments. I got a couple slides here that just show uh, some of my stuff that's up at the UK Column website. Uh, I've got a podcast, a audio podcast, Double Trouble, the Who's Treaty and the Regulations. Uh, that's still posted. And there's one other thing. Uh, this is a broader thing, but very important to read. The One Health Regime and the Demotion of Humankind to the Level of Livestock. I brought that out 13 February of this year important stuff to read that really rounds out what I've been discussing, but it's a good time for people to take action now and uh, write, uh, sign those petitions and write their MPs um, and uh, don't let this thing take, uh, take, uh, take hold through silence and inaction. So maybe you guys got some concluding comments or observations, but that's basically that part. No, I think I think we just echo the, the the silence. You know, consent is assumed if people stay quiet. So you know, if everybody in the chat box, uh, if nobody does anything as a result of this, then then that's that consent is presumed. So we've all got to speak out on these issues. Yeah. Um, shall we move on to Ukraine? Yeah, we'll just move on to a quick update for Ukraine. Although a lot has been happening over the. Uh, last few days and over the weekend. But well, we'll just give you a short update today. I, I couldn't resist uh, picking up on this uh, report with the Telegraph. EU diverts road building funds into 1.7 billion Ukraine ammunition plan. Central budget resources usually set aside for infrastructure projects in 
poorer countries will now boost arms production. So if you want to know what the European Union is really about, we're now starting to see it. Um, we're only bothered with those poor countries when we can get in and help strip them of their minerals and other natural assets. But uh, if there's a war on, we're going to do our best to pump in the weapons. And of course, the Telegraph article further underlying the fact that Ukraine has got an ammunition supply problem. This is actually holding back their counteroffensive. There is no question of this. But also the US itself, the UK, NATO and the EU unable to produce in, uh, ammunition in the quantities that Ukraine needs, never mind uh, supplying their own needs, because they simply do not have the industrial infrastructure to manufacture the heavyweight ammunition. So uh, amazing things happening. But the Ukraine offensive is really very sporadic. It's being um, disrupted by still very wet and muddy conditions. Uh, the mud is of such a scale that, of course, even tracked vehicles often can't move through it. So the Russians, in principle, are very happy to sit tight and allow these very limited Ukrainian attacks to take place because they result in casualties on the Ukrainian side. Now, in Bakhmut, over the last few days, there have been quite heavy Russian casualties due to the fact the Russians are fighting the remains of the best troops that Ukraine has had in Bakhmut. And in the southwest of the city, those troops have principally been uh, uh, well-trained Ukrainian troops um, with also mercenaries, and the mercenaries have nowhere to go. There is no escape route for them, and uh, so they are literally fighting to the death. Casualties on the Ukrainian side, horrific, between 600 and 1,000 men killed a day, and this has ultimately uh, required that the Ukrainians simply keep the battle going by pushing uh, more men in, 600 men killed, Ukraine pushes in another 600 men. And this is why the last 2% of Bakhmut as a city taking so long for the Russians to claim uh, because of the, of the number of men that Ukrainian government's prepared to sacrifice. The fighting in Bakhmut, absolutely brutal. And the Russians have now got to the point where they want to clear out the remaining Ukrainian forces by any means possible. And that has included wall-to-wall -wall shelling to the extent that even the Russians began to run short of ammunition. That problem appears to have now been solved. But massive shelling day and night on the Ukrainian positions, but also the use of uh, what we believe is thermite. And this is a little bit of video clip showing the city at, at night. This is the heavy, heavily fortified Ukrainian area of high-rise buildings, and it's virtually turned into day or a firework display um, as a result of the thermite um, munitions that have been unleashed over a, a, what is quite a significant area. And what's the effect on the ground? Well, this is a video taken by the Ukrainian troops. Uh, each one of these little burning fires immensely dangerous because it can't be put out, and these heat is going to take this through. Uh, metal structures. So a lot of vehicles that the Ukrainians had amongst the high-rise blocks destroyed by the fact the thermite burnt through the vehicles, burnt into fuel tanks or into uh, stocked ammunition. And if we just have a look at this drone footage, um, this is what is often seen. Uh, I, I believe this is an early morning shot, but uh, 
uh, we've got uh, smoke coming up from the attacks that have taken place. And you can see the heavy um, proliferation of high-rise buildings. This forms the so-called citadel, which the Ukrainians have as their last defensive position. And the, the Russians trying to take the uh, so-called dacha areas that you can see where there's just low-rise low buildings and gardens and trees around it. But this is a fortified area. Each building's got to be taken and cleared. And this is why it's taken so long. But there is no doubt of the outcome. The Russians will take Bakhmut and it will have cost the Ukrainians tens and tens and tens of thousands of men killed courtesy, of course, of the enthusiasm of the US, UK, NATO and the European Union. Um, I just find it so sad. Some of the pictures in last, uh, well, the weekend, Mike, and the end of last week were just too too bad to Horrific. put on the screen. Yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, now, the question is, uh, what is the likelihood of this escalating as uh, the situation becomes more desperate? Uh, here's uh, Sergei Rybakov, the uh, Russian Deputy Foreign Minister, and his comments. Uh, he said a couple of days ago, I think yes, um, yesterday on Russian television, we're working on preventing a fall in, of our relations with the United States into the abyss of an open armed conflict. We're already on the verge of that abyss. So he's absolutely suggesting that the situation getting extremely hazardous uh, in terms of uh, potential direct conflict with NATO. Uh, he said uh, the anger and hatred towards Russia with which Washington acts in a situation which, frankly, should think of its own safety is inexplicable. Um, so uh, that, those sentiments echoed by uh, Sergei Lavrov as well. Uh, and I just wanted to mention that to highlight the fact that, you know, the Russians seeing this developing in a very bad direction. Um, and, uh, well, again, that's down to us to, to uh, you know, put some pressure on our own governments to see where... <laughs> It's just how far that's uh, going to go. Well, Boris was at the coronation. Of course, Boris was one of the key politicians that helped ensure that peace talks failed. So yes. it's, it's yeah disgraceful. Um, in the meantime, in, uh, in Ukraine itself, uh, Gonzalo, Gonzalo Lira, the uh, blogger, has been arrested. Now, there was some talk uh, last year, if you remember, of him being picked up, but that didn't happen, it turned out. Uh, it has now happened. Uh, so this is his arrest, uh, the video footage of his arrest. Um, he uh, is being accused of, uh, uh, sorry, under the Article 436-2 of Ukraine's Criminal Code, uh, which is about uh, wartime propaganda. Um, so the SBU uh, made a statement saying the blogger was one of the first to support the Russian invaders and glorify their war crimes. Additionally, in his comments, he disputed the uh, details of Russian missile attacks on Ukrainian cities and mass murders of civilians. Um, and they also said that he uh, uh, was pushing out conspiracy theories uh, around the, the uh, American weapon, uh, bioweapons labs story as well. So he's been arrested. I think he's looking at five to seven years uh, in prison. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. Well, uh, let's come back to Mark. And you've got an exclusive report for us here, Mark, I believe. Yeah, this is a really uh, egregious case. There's a guy named P.F. Lazor, L-A-Z-O-R. Uh, he gave himself the moniker Free Laser, like his first name, Free, kind of a double entendre there because he wants to get free of prison. And this is part of a letter that I myself sent to the Board of Parole Hearings, uh, P.O. Box 4036, Sacramento, California, 95812. 
I won't say much about it. Um, I need not probably read much of it. I, I put there, I learned about laser through a friend of his several years ago via phone conversations and postal correspondence with laser and by talking to others who knew him. I, Mark Anderson, have learned that he's an intelligent, thoughtful, and responsible and kind person with strong spiritual values. Always, always has the needs of others in mind and will always go the extra mile for them and so on and so forth. What's particularly unusual about this, you don't hear this very often, before he uh, went into prison in 1983 uh, under second-degree second murder charges when it was actually an, elf, uh, an act of self-defense from a, a assailant wielding a, um, a cleaver of all things, um, before he went in, he made, get this, he made a donation to a sperm bank, and uh, he only recently found out uh, through the record keeping and through all the things that, that happened there, that he had two daughters from that and then grandchildren. And so he thought he never would have a family. And it turns out in this rather surreptitious manner, he did create a family by making that donation so many years ago. This is from uh, one of his advocacy websites, Free Laser. Uh, he, for a long time, was a Buddy Holly uh, uh, tribute musician. It shows him there looking like Buddy Holly when he was a younger man. He's in his late 60s now, going on 70. And that was back when he was 37 years in prison. Now he's been in been in there 40 plus years. And again, it was self-defense, but through a sham trial, they got him on second degree murder. He was supposed to be out in no more than 17 years. And with good behavior, only half of that and his behavior was good, it, so he should have been out of prison, uh, the Soledad prison in Salinas Valley, California, in May of 1992, this month in 1992, over 30 years ago, and he's still in there. And this next slide illustrates uh, why we believe that's the case. This is Rudy Davis's website about political prisoners in America, and he has kind of a humorous way of accessing this website. You type in, you type in, I hate the FBI.com. Repeat, I hate the FBI.com. And this website, the year of Jubilee will actually come up. And he lists dozens of prisoners on there, including PF Laser, who for various reasons, and there's Laser in the circle part. That's what he looks like today. Uh, Soledad, California, uh, Salinas Valley prison. And there's an address there. Uh, where you can write to him, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's got his cell number and his uh, inmate number and all that. But uh, uh, Laser is one of dozens on that website that are listed as political prisoners in the United States in a country where we're told there really are no political prisoners. But Laser, uh, we believe, may not have been arrested for uh, political activity necessarily, but that he's been kept in prison um, as a political prisoner because he's a very smart and savvy activist. He's got the goods on the corruption in the state of California, particularly in its prison system. And Rudy Davis, who runs that prison ministry website that we just looked at, he and I have talked, and he's been on my radio show at republicbroadcasting.org called Stop the Presses, and we've talked about it. And uh, we believe the California authorities fear what laser will expose uh, if and when he gets out. And his next parole hearing is this coming May 
23rd. So that's just a couple weeks from now, roughly. And um, so uh, American listeners in particular, but really any listeners, are uh, encouraged to write to the Board of Parole hearings just like I did. That address was given there. We can uh, put that on the uh, show notes for today, I'm sure. But um, uh, he's hoping with his newfound family in existence that I mentioned a few minutes ago, he's hoping that the Board of Parole hearings will finally release him. But again, uh, holding him so far past uh, what he should have been held for, past uh, 17 years easily, but he should have been out as long ago as 1992. To hold him in there for 40 plus years uh, uh, is seen as a political thing because of uh, the evidence he's gathered, uh, again, on the prison system, on the overall corruption in California, and they fear what he'll expose. He kind of knows where all the bodies are buried, so to speak. And uh, the last thing I'll mention is he dodged a bullet. Uh, When he he first got in contact with me and wanted me to look into and publicize what he was going through, he thought there was going to be mandated COVID jabs in Soledad prison. And he has very uh, extremely sensitive chemical sensitivities, fluoride in water, various over-the-counter and prescription drugs, food additives, you name it. So he felt that if he was forced to get the COVID jab, which almost happened but didn't, he felt he would have died from that in prison. Yeah. So this is a very unique case among the political prisoners listed at that website. Uh, uh, viewers can go again to IHateTheFBI.com. It'll, it'll come up. You can learn more about Laser and all these other political prisoners in the United States. Uh, there's varying right. reasons why, while they're seen to be political prisoners, with laser, it's more of an after-the-fact thing. With others, they were arrested specifically for political activity. But uh, it's an interesting read, and uh, it's um, an interesting case. And we'll see what happens May 23rd, whether the Board of Parole hearings will actually let him out of prison. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. Uh, okay, uh, David, uh, we're just about out of time, but let's just finish uh, on a bit of climate-related news. Yeah, so we have a little uh, slide here that's from the United Nations, and they're telling us all what to do, as to do. Uh, your everyday choices can help protect our planet and our future. Uh, they're saying we must bike or walk or take public transport um, in order to protect our planet and our future. Okay, so this is when the people obviously have private jets and uh, a lot of uh, first-class airline travel, but we're not meant to think about that. Um The basic principle is here, they are saying that there is a reason that you have to do this. And the reason is saving the planet. Not to get more exercise, no, no, no. We're going to literally save the planet. So we've got the next clip here of this this position just being explored just a little bit and utterly falling apart. It's Senator Kennedy uh, doing the damage and it's rather glorious as to the lack of any justification that the uh, climate alarmist in this case uh, has. Terry, thanks for being here. I want to tap your expertise for a moment. Uh, gi- give, me, uh, uh, give me your best estimate, just an estimate I know, uh, of, of uh, uh, how soon you think the United States of America will be carbon neutral. So uh, I think, according to the climate scientists around the world, and certainly the cutting-edge scientists that we need to rely on here in the U.S., we've got to get carbon 
neutral by 2050, and I'm very comfortable with that target, and I think that's the appropriate by 20, target. By 2050. Which is only 27 years. That is not a long time away. And, and how much will that cost? So the cost that I focus on even more is all the costs no, that the are going to happen cost. if we don't get our act together. How much will it cost to get us carbon neutral? It's going to cost trillions of dollars, and it'll cost tens of trillions of dollars if how, we don't get our act together. How many trillions? I don't have the estimate or the numbers in front of me. I've seen a variety of different estimates, but it's a large amount. Fundamentally transforming our energy economy tell me the is a big deal. You, tell me the estimates that you've seen. I don't have those numbers right on hand. So, so you're advocating that we become carbon neutral, but you don't know how much it's going to cost. So there's an awful lot of estimates out there. It depends yeah, on you're, technology you're the, improvement you're the and other kinds of things. You're the expert. I know, I know with how much it's going to cost. I know with the certainty of all the experts I've spoken about, it's cheaper to get our act together than it is to not get our act together on climate okay. change. Okay. Then tell me the cost versus orders of the magnitude. cost that we, if we don't do it. I think it's orders of magnitude different. If we I don't get that, our act together, you, it's you don't You don't have a cost? You want us to get there, but you can't tell the American taxpayer how much it's going to cost? Is that your testimony? It's going to save us money, and there's a lot of jobs. Well, how do we know if you don't know how much it's going to cost? Uh, I'd be happy to pull up the latest numbers that I've seen. How about $50 trillion? Is that right? It's going to cost trillions of dollars. There's no doubt about it. Okay. If we spend trillions of dollars and we achieve, I, some of your colleagues estimate $50 trillion, and it disappoints me that you're not willing to give the estimates. I don't. I hope you're not telling me you have no idea how much it's going to cost. That creates a whole new host of problems. But but uh, if it costs fifty trillion dollars, as some of your colleagues have testified, to become carbon neutral by two thousand and fifty, and I'm all for carbon neutrality, by the way, how much is that going to lower world temperatures? Or how much is that going to reduce the increase in world temperatures? So every country around the world needs to get its act together. Our emissions are about 13% of global emissions. Yeah, but if right you could now. answer my question, if we spend $50 trillion to become carbon neutral in the United States of America by 2050, you're the Deputy Secretary of Energy. Give me your estimate of how much that is going to reduce world temperatures. So, so first of all, it's a net cost. Um, it's what uh, benefits we're having from getting our act together and reducing all of those climate benefits. We're seeing. I, let me ask again. Maybe I'm being. Right now maybe I'm not being clear. If we spent fifty trillion dollars to become carbon neutral by two thousand and fifty in the United States of America, how? How much is that going to reduce world temperatures? This is a global problem. So we need to reduce our emissions and we need to do everything we can. How much, if we do our part, countries. is it going to reduce so world temperatures? So we're 13 percent of global emissions. You don't know, right do you? You don't know, do you? You can do the math. We need to. You don't know, do you, Mr. Secretary? So we're 13 percent of if global you know, emissions. If you know, why won't you we tell went, me? If we went to zero, that would be 13 percent. You don't know, do you? You just want us to spend $50 trillion dollars. And you don't have the slightest idea whether it's going to reduce world temperatures. Okay, that, that, is, that is wonderful. We will talk more about that in extra. Uh, we will, because oh. uh, a fascinating interview. And, of course, it teaches us a lot about uh, what's, uh, what's being uh, put forward for the future in uh, climate change. But we must end there. We've run out of time. So a very big thank you to our audience today in the UK, overseas, wherever you are. I just wanted to end on one little note that we've uh, unfortunately lost one of the uh, 
long-standing campaigners speaking out on what is wrong in UK. That's a gentleman by the name of Dave Barmby. I've learned that he passed away a few days ago. I will put out more information um, when we know it. But uh, my goodness, what a lot of work he did. And also he was the gentleman that uh, brought forward uh, the uh, analysis of corruption in the EU and uh, helped get the first interview that the UK column did with the French lady who was active with the Yellow Jackets, Georgia Pulican. So very sad to tell you that. And I'm sure some of our older members will have known David um, in his prime. Yes. We'll end, we'll end there. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye.